Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, here we go. Hey, everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So let's step back into the ring and back into time. We get wall to wall, treetop tall with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, where the hurricane is of no consequence in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Right, Stud? Yeah, man. You know, I guess leaving the Tampa wasn't a bad idea. <laughs> no. Not having to deal with any of that. Uh, my brother's down there, though, and, uh, you know, I've been uh, talking to him the last uh, couple of days. And, you know, uh, it's – and they got really lucky, man. Uh, I keep telling him, man, Tampa keeps dodging that bullet. You know, it looks like uh, – <laughs> They're coming to Tampa, and it just never seems to actually get there uh, and be really nasty for them. But uh, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing world we live in, man, these hurricanes nowadays. And, uh, what goes on, man, and weather-wise is, is a pretty, pretty, pretty amazing, man, for darn sure. Yeah, if, now, if Rob is anything like my uncle, who is right there in the Tampa Bay area also, uh, it's okay to come out from under the bed now. So <laughs> my uncle yeah. said he, he slept through the entire thing, never knew there was a storm. Oh, so. yeah. yeah. Well, Rob had to, Rob had to get his, his house prepared. Yeah. And, uh, and he overdid it. And yesterday uh, he went and stayed with his daughter uh, because they live inland. And, uh, and he ended up uh, passing out because he had worked so hard for two days getting prepared on this house. So Wow, was uh, he like... I told him, I said, Robbie, you know, you're, you're, you're getting to be an old man. <laughs> <laughs> was he like boarding up the windows? What was he doing? Oh, yeah, man. He boarding the windows, uh, bringing everything in from outside. I mean, he, yeah. he spent two days working on it and, you know, so... Uh, he, but uh, then he finally found a couple of boys to help him with some of the stuff, and yeah, I said, "Boy, you need to go home now and give those get those boys there and have them do most of it. There you put go. it all back out." So, there you go. All right, good deal, and I'm glad it's not going to be a big deal for the state of Florida. But right now, it is running straight up south central Georgia and headed to the coast. And hopefully that's a good thing. It's going to move out into the Atlantic and then be of no further consequence, hopefully. All right. Hey, Ron, let's start today with a follow-up to the last Studcast. Fans loved your attendance comparison of the first week in September of 1979 to that same week a year earlier in 1978. There was no doubt 1979 was truly what you've been calling 
the worst year of your wrestling career. Well, you know, they, they, my opinion of that fact hasn't changed. That's for darn sure. Uh, its history gets worse with each stud cast, it sounds like, and it seems like, especially now that, you know, we're headed into the fall, which is the worst time of the year for all of the wrestling territories. And when you add that uh, and, uh, to a war in one of the territories and another one is about to be on the horizon in the other, you know, there was a time there when I actually – I guess uh, in 1979, there were a few times I considered finding another way to make a living, man. Wow. All right. If there was anything good about it, all this controversy going in, going on in your life in 1979, it added a ton of new listeners to every stud cast. Yeah, and I'm happy about that, uh, obviously, Dave. Uh, so maybe that, that <laughs> when I think back, Maybe that's the only good thing coming out of that year, 1979, <laughs> after all, you know. So uh, too bad it's taken 44 years and bringing the subject back up for that to happen, though. But, uh, but I get some more bad, bad news uh, from down south in today's studcast. Never seems to end, man. Hmm. I had a feeling something unexpected in southeastern Gulf Coast happened when I saw the title for this stud cast. This is number 314, 314 of these. So the title of this one is Gulf Coast Booker Fired, Tennessee Bounty Begins. So the first part of the title, Booker Fired, really doesn't surprise me. I could tell that it might happen soon. So, hey, lay it out for us. Where do we ride first and how do we get this one going? Well, I got some very bad news from the Booker, uh, Louis Tillette, down in the southeastern Gulf Coast. Bad enough that we're going to start this stud cast uh, down south. We've usually been talking about Tennessee first, but we're going to start this from down south for a change. And uh, then we're, you know, there we were having quick drops in attendance, man. Uh, and that's always a very bad thing for a wrestling territory. Historically, quality wrestlers, you know, they always fear those fast drops in attendance. And they quickly lose confidence, first of all, in their booker. You know, and they see the drops and payoffs as a future problem. Uh, and obviously, it's going to affect their wallet big time. And uh, right away, they begin to start looking for a better place to go. So I'm going to spend a little time uh, with the wrestling lesson in this one that very few fans out there uh, probably have ever heard about before. Uh, we're going to talk about what the business of coming and going for wrestlers was like from territory to territory and how that whole process worked. And then we'll take a current card from the southeastern Gulf Coast, discuss the TV show promoting it, the result of the matches, and the attendances in the three major cities. And then when we get to, to southeastern Knoxville, we're also uh, experiencing a little drop in attendance. But there it's for a different reason. Everybody knew during a very rare wrestling war between two competing wrestling companies, it was going to take some money from their pockets. That was just standard knowledge if you were in the wrestling business. Tennessee territory was basically doing very well at the box office compared to most territories that were in the wrestling war. So we're going to focus in Tennessee upon another great card full of excellent talent and discuss the TV promoting the Stompers Return to Action, which he's going to be on this card coming up. And for the first time in Southeastern, he's going to be on a card as a babyface. And, uh, and I'm going to give the results of the Knoxville card and the attendance there as well. And then I was also, uh, you know, 
uh, going to give fans a peek at the competing all-star wrestling card. The other group in Tennessee up there that's mm -hmm. running against us. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll talk about the night after the Knoxville card. We're going to hopefully, uh, uh, Dave, we're going to have enough time after all of that. We talk about this all-star card. We uh, hopefully have enough time for a learning tree question. Oh, good deal. And I hope we do. That's always a lot of fun and very informative. So it sounds like, Stud, we're going to be learning something new and get some wrestling lessons today. I can't wait to get the inside scoop on how wrestlers handled changing territories. I think that's going to be interesting. But first, I'd like to know what happened to make you fire the Gulf Coast booker, Louis Tillette. Well, man, it, it was basically simple. Uh, you know, uh, Louis called me and, uh, and he said, uh, you know, Rhonda, the Samoans just quit. And, uh, and that was horrible news, man. I really liked those two guys. They were extremely talented and very impressive. And, and I told Louis that he needed to give them their tag belts back soon. I gave Louis some advice. I tried to, to let him know, you know, I think you're making some mistakes here without just being really nasty about it. So, Obviously, uh, he had waited too long. So, so we've been uh, doing a lot of talking about big drops in attendance, especially in the Gulf Coast territory. And that had to concern those guys, those two guys, almost as much as it did me. And, and I was a part owner of the company. So uh, I had already told Louie, like I said, that I thought he was making a mistake by not at least putting the southeastern tab tag belts back on the Samoans at least one more time. Right. Uh, you know, he had the assassins there, mm -hmm. but, you know, the Samoans had done a great job since they had worn those belts for so long. You know, they they deserved an, another little run with the belts and, uh, and a great booker had to be able to gauge stuff like the egos of uh, of, of his wrestlers. And, uh, and believe me, every wrestler has a ego. And they're all different when it comes to that, too. And so <laughs> Louis had already lost Terry Bolia, the Hulk, months, months earlier, you know. Mm -hmm. And I had told Louis after it happened, it was because he never put the Southeastern belt on him. Not a single time while he was there. Uh, not even once. So for guys with big egos, uh, being a champion and wearing the belt, that could make them happy. And, and when their money was dropping, you know, that belt, would sometimes keep a guy in the territory because he was the champion. Wow. So you're saying wrestlers had egos? <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> All right. So what you said makes a lot of sense to me, Stud. Big stars, big egos in just about every business. You mentioned earlier about giving us a wrestling lesson about how wrestlers handled moving around the country from territory to territory. Which do you think the Samoans or Louie let the other know that they were through doing business with each other? Good question, Dave. Especially since we're talking about a great team leaving. I'm going to tell you, you know, who I think gave what was called their notice or news that they were leaving. And I think it was obviously the Samoans because they were needed in that territory. And that territory happened to be their home, Pensacola. So, uh, you know, they wanted to stay there, obviously. So there's a world of difference in this subject today and the wrestling business as a whole today. As compared to wrestling back in the old school days, it all started changing basically in the mid-1980s when uh, Vince McMahon Jr. started killing the territories. Before that time, there might have been at times at least a thousand wrestlers in just America alone. 
1990, that that figure had dropped to probably less than 200. Uh, that's a that's a shame. Uh, and then every one of those old school wrestlers basically were all independent contractors. They moved freely around the country, working for probably as many as 40 different territories and promoters during that time frame, and uh, and and taking care of their movements there on their own. So back in the old school days, the wrestlers themselves made contact with a booker or an owner to see if they had a spot or an opening in the territory for them to come in and work for. Uh, wrestlers made their own decisions about, you know, where there was the best place for them. And the better you were in the ring, the easier it was to get that spot where you felt you could make the most money. The uh, better you were, the better a chance you could get into the best territory. So either you, know, either you or your territory's booker you know, felt it was time for you to leave when it came time to go, there was normally at least a two-week notice given by the booker or the wrestler, whichever one decided that it was time for you to go. And, uh, and it, usually there was a date set for your final match. Each wrestler was responsible for finding his own next territory. Where is he going to go next? Only the best, man, got, got any guarantee from the territory owners of what they were going to make. Most of these guys worked just off the percentage of the house. And, uh, you know, you had to be very good to get some type of guarantee is a mm-hmm. word that was used uh, if you were going to get paid a certain amount, no yeah. matter what you were drawn. Yeah. So almost everybody wrestled for what they were paid and had to be happy with it or find another profession. All right. I know you're going to break this down a little bit, but some, some wrestlers, because there were so many territories before Vince Jr. came in, you really could be kind of a big fish in a small pond if you if you really had the chops, if you could really do the job. So to me, that's interesting how wrestlers constantly moved from one part of the country to another and handled that on their own. Also, And I've also wondered how much money would you make a night when you're first getting started and trying to get into the business? Well, that's a, that's a great question, you know, I mean, uh, all of it was, was handled by, by, by the wrestlers personally, you know, obviously they couldn't say, tell you uh, what they wanted to make until they were really good and uh, maybe they would get a guarantee. So every wrestler was paid based upon the size of the crowd and uh, what match they were wrestling in that night. You know, if you had five matches, you know, it was a lot of difference, believe me, between the opening match and the main event payoff, <laughs> there was a big, big difference. Mm-hmm. So uh, as an example, I started in 1970 in Georgia. And, and I seldom in my first six months got higher on the card than the first match. Because uh, you had to pay the price. I mean, you had to learn the trade. And, uh, you know, so you didn't get paid big money until you earned it, basically. So some nights, I got as little as $25. And some nights... And in big cities uh, with bigger crowds, I got maybe $60 on that first match. So uh, so most six-day weeks, I was lucky to make $250. But I was ecstatic to be doing what I dreamed of all my life. And really, two, $250, and you're talking early 70s? Yeah. That's, I mean, that's... Yeah. That's not so bad in the early seventies. I mean, to 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 get started, or at least in your case, because you had so much in your favor, you were 
very tall. You were a big guy stepping into the, the ring. All right, so I don't know about everybody else listening out there, but it really surprises me. I, I kind of thought you would still make more money than that. Is it like the 250 you mentioned? Yeah, well, you know, it was 1970. You mentioned that, Dave. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, so, and and I have a feeling if you look it up, and, and, and I'm sure some people will, uh, $250 might have been worth as much as 2000 Per day. Per, yeah. And you're talking per, yeah, per day. So, yeah. All right. So you're probably right about that, Ron. This subject is really interesting. I love talking about this stuff. I know that we've got a lot to cover today, but do you think in the next Studcast, you could tell us about how things changed, especially for the wrestlers in the late 1980s and maybe even beyond? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, that's an interesting subject as well. I mean, everything changed. Uh, yeah, we can do that next week. Uh, you know, we got a lot going on in this one, but uh, we can do that. Sport, the sports entire business model changed. It didn't just, it wasn't just uh, little pieces of the business. The entire way wrestling was handled was changed in less than five years. Somewhere between 1988 and about 1993, Everything changed in wrestling. So right now, uh, let's ride into Mobile, Alabama on Tuesday, September 5th, uh, 1979. Talk about our first card uh, in this studcast. It's going to be in Mobile, Alabama in the Gulf Coast Territory. Uh, Roy Lee Welch opened the card against the Inferno. Then you had newcomer uh, Tom McBride uh, wrestling against Herb Calvert. And after Louie, uh, you know, telling me the Samoans were leaving in four days at the, end of, at the end of this week that we're talking about, I got on the phone and I tracked down two Georgia boys, Mike Stallings and his cousin Jerry Stubbs, and I put them back in the wrestling business. They had both <laughs> left the wrestling business, and both of these guys were extremely talented. So uh, I knew that the Samoans were leaving. I needed two baby faces down there. At this point, I didn't trust Louie to handle it and get it done. So I talked to Mike Stallings. I talked to Jerry Stubbs, and uh, and I got him to come back to wrestling. And so this was going to be their first tag match together in uh, in their short careers. They had, had both been wrestling for a little over a year at that point before they quit. And uh, this was kind of a new beginning for both of them. So they were wrestling on this card uh, as, as a uh, – you know, they had been uh, uh, star. They were they were had been uh, uh, very good uh, stars there, especially uh, Mike Stallings. Jerry Stubbs had really not spent any time in that territory at that point, so they were going to be uh, wrestling against uh, from Tennessee at this point. Eddie Mansfield. We had sent him south because we were uh, Louis was not getting the job done now, and Eddie Mansfield was partnering with a guy named Rock Hunter. And they, that was uh, in the second week, who was just in his second week in the, in the Gulf Coast Territory. So the next match was a special event, Crusher Blackwell versus Oxbaker. And that truly is a special event, those two guys, uh, big names. Two championship matches topped the card off for the Southeastern Championship. There was a no-time limit match. Austin Idol was defending against the Gladiator. And for the Southeastern Tag Belts, the champion assassins well, were taking on the Samoans. Uh, winners, winners have got the belts, and the losers had to leave Southeastern. Well, okay. we on Lou and I, Lou and I knew the <laughs> Samoans were gone, 
But right. the fans didn't, obviously. Uh, all right. So someone was serious about getting things going again, Ron. Jerry Stubbs and his real cousin, Mike Stallings, who had a very good run there in 1978, probably going to be a really good team. So who booked this card? Was it you? Was it Louie? Was it somebody else? Well, I did, man. You know, once once you fire your booker, you you know you don't you don't really uh, give him the opportunity to do any booking anymore, uh, and I, and I couldn't let business get any worse than what what it had at this point. I gave Louis basically a two week notice, but I told him if he handled the finishes for me each night because I'm in Tennessee and I'm uh, dealing with a war there, I can't really leave Tennessee and go down south again. You know, I told Louie if he handled the finishes each night and, and did the TVs, I would set him up and tell him what to do, that I would stretch maybe his two-week uh, notice to four weeks, depending on how things were going, if he was doing if he was doing a good job at that. Uh, and I had no fi- ill feelings uh, toward Louie. I think he tried his best. And, and, you know, to his credit, he found some extremely good talent in the six months he'd been booking there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Right? Uh, you yeah. know, I mean, you got uh, the Hulk. He brought in Austin Idol. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the Samoans. Uh, the, all those guys are people he was responsible for. So, you know, uh, so it, you know, and then some of those guys, uh, and he drew an all-time record crowd in Dothan, Alabama. Right? So, so and I always, uh, at this point, I was learning how to run a wrestling company. This was a great experience for me. And I tried never to burn bridges, man, because yeah. you never knew who you might need again someday. Yeah. Was Louie, I don't know Louie, uh, obviously you knew him very well. Was he Was he the type who thought, man, I did amazing things. I brought the Hulk into the business. I, I really uh, stirred it up in this market. I can do no wrong. Was he that type? Well, not really because, uh, you know, a booker couldn't be too cocky, uh, you know, because uh, his, 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 his livelihood was based upon how big the crowds were. Right. Uh, you know, Louis had been a, a booker for a lot of territories. It wasn't that this wasn't his first time as a booker. He'd booked in Florida. He'd booked in Georgia. He'd booked other territories. And he realized that if business don't come up, I'm going to lose my job. Right? Yeah. So, it reminds me of being in broadcasting when the ratings come out twice twice a year in this market as they as they did. It, you only if you live by the sword, you buy, die by the sword. So you thought we did really well in this rating period, but there's always the next one. So you immediately had to get right back in it and start pounding away. All right. So who was on the TV five days earlier to promote and set up this card? Well, the TV opened up with the Gladiator uh, at the set with Charlie Platt, and uh, they watched the end of the match that he had had from the week before, where Austin Idol intentionally pulled the referee. They, that Idol was on TV wrestling uh, Roy Lee Welch, and he pulled the referee, who was Larry Brock, into him on purpose. And uh, the ref and Roy, uh, you know, both butted heads and went down, and uh, then Idol pulled a little rope out of his tights and he wrapped it around Roy's throat. Uh, referees down. And you don't see this at all. And so the gladiator uh, asked for Charlie to stop the tape at that point. And he reminded fans that Idol had said in last week's show that no one had ever put him to sleep with a sleep rope. So he told, told Charlie, he says, you know, uh, go ahead and roll the rest of the tape, you know. 
and it showed Gladiator coming into the ring. The ref uh, was still down, kind of getting up, and uh, and he and the idol and the Gladiator put his sleeper hold on the Idol Man. So uh, and he put Idol to sleep, laid him out flat, put Royalty on top of him, and left the ring. Referee actually counted Idol out. He was still laying flat on his back when it, when Royalty got up and left the ring. So then the gladiator told everybody, he says, right there, there it is again, you know. He said, I put Idol to sleep, and, uh, and this week, he said, I'm going to do it again. But he said, this time, we're going to be wrestling for the Southeastern belt. So the studio popped, man, and he headed for the ring, got himself a big win, and, and he got it with the sleeper hold again. Then the second match of the day was the new boys from Georgia, Mike Stallings and his cousin Jerry Stubbs. And Charlie told me, man, they tore the studio apart in their first tag match ever. He said they looked like they had been a team for years. You know, and then uh, Austin Idol was on the personality profile. He had his championship belt, uh, and he also had his championship attitude with him, which he had all the time. He, He didn't have to go looking for that. And he was very upset that they let the gladiator show that chokehold, he called it. You know, uh, that he, he said that the idiot gladiator calls this a sleeper hold. He said, this is nothing but, but a chokehold. And, uh, you know, he said that he had laid there so long after the idiot had applied it because he was actually choked to death. He said, he almost practically killed me. He choked me to death almost. And then, then he said, that, you know, Charlie, you know, surprised him and he asked him he said uh, saying you know we we have a video you know of a recent 45 minute time limit match between you and the gladiator so uh, i went crazy he choked charlie no this match was was going to not going to be shown you know uh he said i still have the belt and i'm the champion and i'm going to be treated as a champion so he says, there's no reason to show this match, a 45-minute time limit match. He said, the time limit ran out, and he didn't beat me. So he said, uh, you know, and then uh, he said at the end of it, he said he choked me again, totally out, after the bell rang. He said, I could have been killed. He said, like I almost was here on TV last week. He goes, it's not a sleeper hole, it's a choke hole. So he says, uh, I'm going to suit uh, Southeastern Wrestling. I'm going to sue Southeastern Wrestling if you show this match, Charlie. So the studio was loving it. <laughs> they always liked to see Idol up mad, right? So Charlie asked for the director. He says, I, hey, I don't care. You don't have to watch it. You know, We're going to run it. So he, Charlie says uh, to Wayne Register, who was the director upstairs, he said, run that video, Wayne. And so Idol jumped up and he screamed to Charlie. He said, you're making a huge mistake. I'm not watching it. And he said, this is going to cost Southeastern Wrestling a ton of money. I'm putting my lawyers on them right now, right? And you too, Charlie. He said, I'm going to put the lawyers on you too, man, for doing this. Wow. So the video started and Idol stormed off the set. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anybody threaten to that extreme to keep a match from being shown. So did Charlie continue? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and then uh, then it he's up to the point where it showed the gladiator with the sleeper hold on idle, and the bell was ringing. The time limit had run out, but he had got the sleeper on him just before the bell rung, and uh, he still had the sleeper bell rung, so he's still hanging on to the sleeper. So uh, idle got some great heat by leaving a profile in progress. Nobody ever did that type of thing, and uh, 
you know, so it was a very unusual little deal, and uh, and it threw drew a lot of attention, not just to Charlie, but also to the gladiator. So the assassins then wearing their belts into the ring. Uh, next, they got booed like crazy. It was the third television match. They won, and they used their fantastic headbutt, and uh, which was classic uh, assassin moves. Uh, Ox Baker took it home, man, the last of the TV, and left a young opponent helpless in the ring. He uh, hit him with a heart punch for no reason. He had absolutely no reason to hit him with a heart punch. Wow. But, uh, Baker was that type of guy, you know, he didn't care. A very serious TV show advertising a very good card. So what happened in Mobile? Five days later, I think it's going to be September 5th, 1979, take us to Expo Hall. Well, Roy Lee Welch uh, won his match over the Inferno. Herb Calvert got the best of the newcomer named Tom McBride. Uh, Jerry Stubbs and Mike Stallings got a win over Eddie Mansfield and the Hunter. I think they probably beat Eddie Mansfield, but I uh, don't remember exactly. Don't have the actual uh, who won that match. Uh, but I do know that Stallings and uh, Stubbs won. Uh, Crusher Blackwell and Ox Baker, according to Louie, who told me about this uh, after after the show ran, that, that they tore the house down. And they, they both got bloody and both got disqualified. It was the same type of match they'd been having every time they wrestled. Austin Idol avoided the gladiator sleeper hold, and he won in 30 minutes this time. So uh, they didn't have to go to... Uh, uh, to any type of time limit, uh, Idol actually got himself, uh, you know, got himself a win. So then the assassins held on to their belts, uh, and they sent the Samoans packing in the Southeastern Championship loser leave match. And the Samoans wouldn't be traveling far to get home. They lived in Pensacola, which hmm. is about 50 miles away. But they would, however, never wrestle again for Southeastern. Wow. But what a night for wrestling. A great new family-related tag team from Georgia made their first appearance as one of the best tag teams in the world was finishing up and hard to believe never working for Southeastern again. So how about the attendance? How did you do on this card in the three major markets in that Southeastern territory? Well, I'm happy to say, man, the long downward slide in attendance was over. It ended on this card. Thank goodness. Uh, all three of these major cities were up. Montgomery went from 1,700 up to 2,100. Mobile went from 22 back to 3,000. And Dothan from 1,900 to 2,500. So the three-city total went from 5,800 the week before to 7,600. So it kind of made me believe there was still a future there, man, in, uh, down there in the Gulf Coast. Okay, we've heard all kinds of interesting things in the first part of this big stud cast. When we return after the break, we're going to be in Tennessee, a big card in Knoxville, and Ron's going to be giving everyone, for the first time in a long time, another all-star wrestling card for the competing company and a whole lot more in the second half as this Studcast continues. All right, Studcast fans, as we go to the break, Ron's got something to talk about here because last week, it, it doesn't seem like it's really set in yet, but you did an amazing tribute last week, Ron, to the late Terry Funk, who died at the age of 79 out in, I think it was in Arizona. And you're really getting some good numbers on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
you know, I, I just wanted to thank fans for all of their uh, all of their uh, joining in and uh, and the great comments that I have gotten uh, off of that tribute. Uh, wow, uh, Terry was uh, one of the greatest friends I ever had in the wrestling business, and uh, one of the greatest wrestlers ever in the wrestling business history. And uh, you know, uh, and uh, it's on uh, it's on YouTube for those that may not have, heard, have listened to it. And uh, like you said, uh, there's been great uh, great activity. There's been a lot of interest in it. And also at the same time, there's another something new on YouTube that's just gone up there too. And uh, it's about someone that uh, left us a couple of years ago, Bob Armstrong, and his son Brad. Uh, one of the southeastern matches from way back in uh, 19, I think it's from 1980. Uh, wow, a tremendous, tremendous match. So, you know, for fans uh, that uh, haven't gone to YouTube, it's at YouTube Southeastern Rewind. Uh, there's the Terry Funk uh, tribute there, uh, Bob and Brad Armstrong, tremendous tag team match. Uh, so, um, you know, I just encourage fans, if you haven't gone that uh, direction, you don't know about the YouTube, uh, go ahead and subscribe and uh, and check it out. There's a whole lot of great things on there. Okay, Ryan, the second part of this studcast should be just as filled with information as the first was. So there's a lot still to come. Do you want to begin with the Knoxville Coliseum card? I think it's Friday night, September 7th, 1979. Yeah, that works for me, my man. Uh, and boy, this was a loaded card. Uh, Dino was open in the night against a newcomer named Wayne Rogers. Tony Charles was taking on the much larger wrestler than he was, uh, Doug Gilbert, a returning uh, Doug Gilbert, uh, who at this point uh, changed his name uh, from Gilbert to Redbeard uh, because he had a full red face, a hair full of uh, red, (laughs) (laughs) red all over his face, man. Uh, He had been a pretty big star there in 1978. And he was back again uh, late 79. Uh, then I called uh, this card loaded because the third match on the card was a loser leave Southeastern match. For the third match on the six match card to be a loser leave match, the card definitely had to be loaded. So, uh, and uh, in this one, uh, it sure was. And uh, this third match was a, the extremely popular, but at this point, Paul Orndorff, he was wrestling against the extremely disliked Korean assassin, Kevin Sullivan, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. For the Southeastern Tag Championship, Robert and I were defending against another new combination. Uh, we'd been getting all types of different teams. Uh, ta- this one was toward Tanaka and Novell Austin, and they were going to be managed by Gorgeous George Jr. And then uh, Gigi was ha- going to uh, have his first bounty match going to be the next thing on the card. Gorgeous George Jr. was serious, man, about getting rid of the stomper for good, and he was giving his Russian, Alexis Smirnoff, the first shot at winning that $5,000 bounty money. And all he had to do was hurt the Mongolian stomper bad enough to send him out of wrestling to make the bread. Last match on the night uh, was for the Southeastern Championship. They had a no disqualification clause. It was Jimmy Golden's second chance to take the Southeastern belt away from champion Dick Slater. And because Norvell Austin and Bob Armstrong had both been involved in the championship match between these two guys in last week's 
uh, matches. Uh, and Bob Armstrong wasn't on this card. Norvell Austin was going to be barred from ringside. So that uh, it was just going to be between Slater and Golden. So it sounds like a really loaded card stud. A loser leaves match, two championship matches, and a bounty match all on one card. So what was on the TV six days prior to that that set this whole thing up? Well, this TV was was going to be one of the most shocking men to fans of any in the history of Southeastern wrestling. And that, that's, that's a fact for sure. The personality profile in this one was going to blow minds everywhere and, and, be, and be maybe the most talked about profile ever in Southeastern. So the TV opened with gorgeous George Jr. at the set with Les, and behind them on that huge backdrop uh, was a still shot from the night before. It was Gigi uh, and Stomper in street clothes coming up behind him, kind of basically sneaking up behind him. And uh, Stomper was not, it was a still shot, so he could to see Stomper in street clothes. Uh, you get the shot of Gigi. And uh, so Stomper wasn't booked on that card the week before, and uh, but he was going to definitely affect the outcome of that night for Gigi and his men, that's for sure. So Gorgeous George Jr. gave uh, less, you know, very little chance to talk which wasn't unusual. Gigi took over, uh, as, as was the case many times, and he started with the steel shot behind him. Uh, you know, that the studio fans were already cheering that shot because, uh, you know, they, they knew most of those people had been at the match the night before. They knew what uh, happened in this. So Gigi demanded the director, you know, to, to roll the video. And then he tore into his former star, the Stomper, you know, accusing Stomper of sneaking up on him. Not once, but twice last night. He sneaked up on me. He tried to, you know. So the video showed Gigi running. <laughs> once it started rolling, Gigi took off running. And that's the last <laughs> thing you saw of Gigi in that video. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, Stomper ended up going uh, into the ring, helping Paul Orndorff uh, get a win over the Korean assassin, Kevin Sullivan. So, you know, Gigi didn't do anything to help his man, that's for sure. So then uh, Gigi yelled to get out of that video, you know, and he goes, I know you got another one less, so show it. Let's get it shown. So it started with the stomper. Same type of deal. Here he came. Gigi was uh, about to get involved in the match, and stomper came down to the ring again. And, uh, you know, so Gigi described the action. Uh, after he ran away, it showed Gigi again, run off to the dressing room. But then he said, you know, look at the stomper. He goes, instead of him going after me, he went in the ring after my two men. And he said, look what he does to him. <laughs> and uh, so stomper was, he went in and uh, just took care of business on both Tanaka and Smirnoff, man. Left him laying and it was a tag match with Rob and I. So when uh, stomper finished and he had his street clothes on. Stomped them both in the head with his street shoes on. And then he got out of the ring and left the ring and went, disappeared into the crowd. And uh, so Rob and I are standing there watching all of it. There was a no DQ match. So, you know, it was going to be no disqualification. And we just went over and pinned both those guys. <laughs> and they kept our belts. So, uh, <laughs> so you could hardly hear Gigi by this point. He's watching this and the, you know, a studio crowd was cheering the video like crazy, and uh, and it was totally they were totally drowning Gigi out. So, 
So uh, Gordon's George was he, he was so angry, man, with the studio crowd. He, he screamed his regular "Shut up" to him, and he go, "Shut up out there!" Right? That always works. And then he yeah, obviously he, he got them all to do exactly what he wanted. Yeah, of course. So, and then he told Les, you know, he said, "You know what happened last night?" He says, "That's the reason. You just watched the reason that I put up the bounty on the Stompers' head." He goes, yeah. I, "I'm not going to put up with this." He goes, "The southeastern area is just not big enough." For the both of us, not for me and for the stalker. Hmm. One of us has got to go. So he jumped up from the desk, man, <laughs> and he was upset, and he started to storm off the set. But, you know, when you left the set, you could only go off in one direction, off to the left. And when he turned to, to leave the set, he get, guess who came around the corner of the set just at the same time? There was a Mongolian stalker. <laughs> <laughs> and the stomper was mad because he had watched what was going on in the dressing room, I'm sure. And he came out there to get his hands on Gigi. And so Gigi screamed, man, and he ran back toward Les. He had about to turn Les's chair over. And then he realized he was trapped. He couldn't get out of that little <laughs> cubby hole he was in, right? Yeah. So he uh, he crawled over the desk and they fell into the cameras and well, he took a bump, and the crowd was going crazy, and uh, finally got away. Well, I, I, I guess you would say, uh, speak of the monster, there he stood. So anyway, all right, I can't say I blame him, but if, I mean, if the stomper was trying to get his hands on me, man, he was a monster. What a way to open a show. So how about the first match of the TV? Well, uh, that was with, the, obviously, at this point, the Mongolian stomper. You know, he was basically scheduled to be in the first match. You know, but I guess he just couldn't stand it any longer, and he had to go to get his hands on Gigi. But so the TV studio, they were on fire at this point. They they had not seen the Stomper as a babyface, you know. So, and uh, after that opening, you know, they they were ready to see him go. And boy, he Stomper didn't take him long to demolish his poor opponent. Man, he just went in and destroyed the guy he was going to be wrestling, and the fans just loved it. Second TV match was Paul Orndorff uh, versus another very unlucky opponent. Uh, Paul was, wow, at this point, he was a young guy, a young star, man. And he was beginning to feel, man, uh, what it was like to become a star. You could just see it every week. He was just improving dramatically. Uh, Gorgeous George Jr. uh, was taking no chances, man. Uh, So he came back out to the set. But this time he brought all of his men to surround him so that he could say something, right? Not have to worry about the stomper again. So they surrounded the set, but, but uh, you know, GD didn't stay very long. He said he just wanted to say, you know, <laughs> goodbye. He said, that, you know, Norndorf was still in the ring at this point. He said, Les, I, uh, I just want to say goodbye to Mr. Football up there, Paul Orndorff. He said, <laughs> he's going to be wrestling uh, next Friday night in his last match in Tennessee. And he goes, I want to say goodbye to him here because next Friday night he's wrestling my Korean assassin. And uh, he, we're gonna, he's going to get finished off. And uh, he's going to be leaving Southeastern next week. So just want to say bye-bye to Paul Orndorff. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the fans don't care much about that. But they couldn't hear him in the studio. So they didn't really know what he said anyway. <laughs> so then Orndorff, at, during this during the end of this match and with all that going on, he made the statement on his own, man. Uh, so he did the finishing 
of uh, this whole segment in the ring, man. And he hit this guy that he was wrestling with one of those football tackers. Man, uh, the guy didn't get up. <laughs> he was not going to get up from that one. Wow. All right. So how close are we to the personality profile? I can't wait to hear this one. And, and who was on it? Well, the Mongolian stomper was on it. And, uh, you know, and, and he had been, the stomper at this point had been in Southeastern Territory for four years. And he had never in four years spoke a word on television. And in his talking had always been done, obviously, first by Don Carson for the first few years, and then Gorgeous George Jr. for the last couple of years. And uh, this profile was done live in a studio with the audience just a few feet away from Fessen Stomper. And they sat down in those personality profile chairs, real comfortable chairs, and Les welcomed him, and uh, and so did the studio crowd. Uh, they gave uh, Stomper a round of applause and cheers uh, because, you know, he he was after the guy they, they really disliked the most, and obviously that was Gorgeous George Jr. So uh, Les was a little hesitant to start with because he had no idea, just like I did, I did, uh, what was going to, how this was going to go, man. Uh, you know, Stomper never talked. He never said anything on TV. So Les kind of broke the ice, basically. He asked Stomper, he said, uh, how, did, how did it feel? Uh, how does it feel to have no manager? After all these years of success in Southeastern here, how does it feel that uh, you're kind of on your own? And without hesitation, the Stomper said right out, you know, it feels great, Les. You know? And you could have heard a pin drop in the studio. Fans were all looking at each other in shock, man. You could, you could see them kind of asking each other, you know, uh, did it, was that the mind? Did he talk? Uh, did, right. Did the Mongo talk? Had right? he not? You had know? he had he not talked up to this point? He had never said a word. Wow. Ever in four years, he had never. He always had managers. No, they yeah. did all his talking. Yeah. Wow. He did a talking in the ring, but he never <laughs> did any talking outside the ring. Right. <laughs> so you know, this was a shock to fans. They were like, "Wow, the Stomper talks." Right. So so let's just ask him a couple basic questions to begin with. He said, "You know, uh, well, what's your name? You know, and then where you where'd you come from?" Right. So. So, uh, so Rob and I, we were up in the control room upstairs on the second floor. We could see the studio crowd, you know, from where we were. And fans, their mouths were open and their eyes were all wide, man. And, uh, you know, no one expected this, man. So, you know, and I could only imagine what fans watching at home were thinking, you know. So, uh, you know, the Stomper's talking, right? So uh, Stomper, you know, he never hesitated, and he handled the questions uh, Les asked him with ease. He said, you know, my name is Archie Goldie. And he said, I was born in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And he said, you know, I've been wrestling for more than 20 years. And he says, uh, you know, it's time for me to change my life. You know, he goes, uh, he said, for years, I've been somebody's puppet. For years, man, they've been pulling my strings. And he says, for a change, I'm going to start pulling the strings, hmm. you know? And he said, uh, and you could feel it, you know, just that one little line, you could kind of feel that uh, the the crowd kind of relaxed, you know? There uh -huh. was like, like, wow, wait, this ain't going to be so bad, you know? And then he continued on. He said, uh, you know, he apologized. 
he, he said, I owe, uh, he says, Les, I owe an apology to all the fans in this part of the country. He says, for years, I've been allowing managers to run my life for me. And he said, uh, that, that finally, he says, it's time for me to stand on my own two feet, to take care of business and get even with those that he have used me to do their dirty work for so many years. He got a pop. Well, me and Rob was like, wow, the studio went, yeah, gee, man, that makes sense. So you could feel the studio, man. They were warming up to him, and he discontinued on. So so then Les kind of changed the subject. He's saying, you know, told the fans, he said, fans, uh, Archie, called him by his first name, because Archie brought a tape to me today, and it's of a match of him uh, when he was a young wrestler in Canada, uh, a match and an interview. And he said he wanted fans to let you fans know what he was like before guys like Don Carson and Gorgeous George Jr. got control of it. So Les played the video. And uh, Rob and I almost fainted. We saw the stomper for the first time ever in the video. He had a full head of thick black hair. And he was young. He was, God, it was, he was like, that's, that's stomper. That, that can't be stomper. And then, then when the video ended about four minutes later, the studio crowd, they had gone from kind of warming up to him to totally accepting him at this point. So they cheered for him, man. You know, the young guy, and uh, he, he was a different human being. They cheered, and some of them stood and clapped for him. Basically, he was a new wrestler that they had never known before. So these fans were realizing that this guy's a human being, you know. He's not a, he's not a machine like <laughs> what, a killing, stomping machine. He, right. He's a, he's a human being, right? So then Archie finished it up. He thanked the studio audience, uh, you know, the studio crowd for their support. And those at home, you know, uh, he said, hopefully y'all forgive me, you know. And he says, uh, and he says I promise I'm going to make it right. Uh, starting next Friday night with Alexis Smirnoff. Uh, that uh, is uh, going to get a bounty if he can beat me and hurt me, you know. And he says, and hey, I'm going to start off with Alexis next Friday night, and I'm going to run all of Gorgeous George men out of Southeastern. And then personally, on the end of it, when they're all gone, I'm going to end Gorgeous George Jr. career forever. <laughs> Profile ended with a huge pop. Wow. What a great personality profile. I can understand you're being a little worried about this stomper turn and especially having him talk for the first time. But it sounds like he was really in control. Oh, man, he was he was a phenomenal interviewer. He was a great talker. You could tell it. So uh, and, and you bet we were worried about it, Dave. I mean, the future of the entire territory was kind of at stake here. This is a huge angle. You take a heel. For four years, it's been a top guy, and you turn him babyface. You don't know what's going to happen, especially when he's never talked. So uh, Dick Slater went to the set with Les uh, to watch his next opponent, Jimmy Golden, uh, and he got another. Uh, Jimmy got him another TV victory, and Slater was defending his belt the next Friday night in a no DQ match against Jimmy, and uh, Norvell Austin was going to be barred from ringside, and uh, so Rob and I closed the TV out. Uh, we were Southeastern champions. We wore the belts into the ring, uh, and we had uh, we've been champions for at this point almost two months, and got that studio on their feet, man. 
And uh, we got fuller leg locks on both of our opponents and uh, ended up with a great ending to the show. <laughs> That's a great TV show. It had a little bit of everything, it seems like. So what happened the next Friday night in the Coliseum? Well, Dino beat Wayne Rogers. Uh, Tony Charles won over that much bigger opponent, Redbeard. Uh, Paul Orndorff got his most important win yet in Southeastern. And he sent uh, one of Gorgeous George men, Gorgeous George Jr.'s men, uh, the Korean assassin Kevin Sullivan Packer. And uh, Kevin had had an extremely successful run in Southeastern Knoxville. And I, gosh, we were, uh, I'd never done business with Kevin before, but I was so impressed with how he had done as a babyface. Then he had finished up as a heel. And uh, so Kevin was heading south. We were sending them down to the Gulf Coast. I was a man, I was the booker at this point. I needed good talent, and Kevin was good enough to uh, and happy to go down and uh, work for us in that territory. So Robert and I uh, successfully defended the Southeastern Tag Belt against Tor Tanaka and uh, Norville Austin. And we got a little assist from the Mongolian Stomper because Gorgeous George Jr., uh, you know, uh, uh, obviously, uh, like I said, Norvell was, a, you know, barred from ringside. But Gorgeous George Jr. came down with those two guys at the match, at the beginning of the match. So when Gigi started to get involved uh, in the match, uh, Mongolian Stomper ended up coming down. And uh, right away, Gorgeous George saw him, and Gorgeous George couldn't run fast enough to the dressing room. And uh, when he did, me, Rob and I went in, and uh, we finished off his team. So the Mongolian Stomper then got his first Knoxville win uh, over a very determined Alexis Smirnoff. I watched the match. Alexis Smirnoff was, he was much stronger than I thought he was going to be. Uh, but he wasn't able to, to beat the Russian man. I mean, he wasn't able to beat the big Mongol. And, and uh, you know, the Russian was intent on getting that $5,000 bounty money, but uh, he couldn't make it happen. He was not able to win. And, uh, and uh, Stomper got the best of it. And then, and then the last match, no disqualification, Southeastern title match between the champions, Slater and Jimmy Golden. Uh, Novell Austin was barred from ringside and didn't show up. But guess who showed up again? Gorgeous George Jr. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was about to interfere in, in this match. And uh, Stomper, who was hot on his trail, man. I mean, Stomper was not – Stomper was out to get him, man. And – uh so Stomper showed up again. Gorgeous George took the same uh, sprint to the dressing room, and uh, that kind of opened the door for uh, the no-DQ match. Uh, Stomper chased him off to the dressing room. And uh, so Rob and Jimmy, there was no no love lost between those two. They both had bald heads, man. <laughs> and uh, so Rob didn't want, he hadn't forgot it, man. So mm -hmm. here's his chance. It's a no DQ match. Stompers run off uh, Gigi. And uh, so uh, Rob just goes in the ring and uh, Slater just backs into the corner and says, go get him. But uh, Rob did. <laughs> he pile-drived Jimmy and the Slater just walked over and covered him for the win. So uh, <laughs> it, was a, it was a big night. Oh, no doubt. Absolutely. All right, so a lot going on that night, Stud. How about the attendance in the Coliseum? Well, the week before, it had been 3,500. Uh, 
This time it, it went up 500. It went back to 4,000, which was about, I think, two weeks ago we had been at 4,000. But with all this that we were doing on this card, man, and, uh, you know, Stomper turning babyface and having a great interview and fans uh, taking to him, uh, uh, there, there had been a, you know, if there hadn't been a war going on, I think we would have had 5,000 plus in that mm -hmm. building for this type of card. Okay, so it looks pretty much like everything you were doing was still just not enough to get back to where you were before the war started. You had to be getting a, not just a little bit, a lot frustrated, maybe. Oh, man, that's an understatement, Dave. You know, <laughs> uh, but I couldn't, I couldn't be too upset. I knew, how, I knew how bad things were for the Knoxville Five when I looked at their, their crowds, you know, and we've got 4,000 there, you know. Uh, the week before, the guy told me that he thought they only had 500. So, you know, uh, uh, I was a little disappointed. I was very disappointed, I guess I should say. But at the same time, uh, how disappointed had those guys had to be? Oh, I was going to say, if they were down to 500, I mean, they they had to be to the point of desperation. All right, speaking of the war, I think you said we were – we were going to not only get an estimate of the crowd size as usual, but what their entire card looked like on the next night after the Southeastern matches we just talked about. Yeah. So, you know, uh, that's, that's what we're going to do, man. Uh, we normally talk about uh, just the size of the crowds, but uh, uh, they were wrestling the day, the following night. Uh, we were in the Coliseum. They were in the Bill Meyer baseball stadium. It was Saturday night, September 8, 1979. Uh, we had a six-match card. They had a five-match card. The opening match was Don Wright against DeVoy Brunson, uh, then his brother, Ron Wright, going against Tony Peters. Uh, and Tony Peters, since, uh, since I mentioned him here, man, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say he's another one of those wrestlers that just recently passed away, I think uh, within the last week or so. Uh, so, you know, we, we're losing them faster than it's, it's, it's just, it's just a shame. Uh, then there was a midget match on their, on their card. Uh, they had Wee Willie against a, uh, a guy called the Little Boy Blue. Uh, then there was a Russian death match, Bob Root versus the Assassin. Now, I don't know why they call it a Russian death match, you know, especially since neither one of those two guys were Russian. <laughs> so, but... Anyway, it was Bob Root versus the Assassin in the Russian death match. The main event, it had the Russian in it. The Great Malenko was in the main event, but they didn't they didn't have that match, didn't have a Russian title of any kind on it. But the Great Malenko and the Macho Man were wrestling against Ronnie Garvin and Bob Orton Jr. in the main event. And and I didn't have any problem with their card, uh, but there were two things they advertised in the paper and uh, the, every place that he could advertise it on their TV show and everything else that wasn't going to happen. They advertised two things that they knew weren't going to happen. And uh, this was the type of thing that uh, some of these companies in wrestling wars did that it made fans angry about the way they handled business and they did not, uh, to, they weren't honest with fans. And, uh, and they, that's why uh, wrestling wars killed so many good territories uh, mm -hmm. because of the way uh, business was handled by these people that shouldn't be uh, shouldn't own companies. 
So they ever, one of the things they did, the first thing they did is they advertised that Don Carson was going to be the special referee in the tag match. Huh. Well, now Don was a, was a wrestler who, had, who we had basically made a star of uh, down in the Southeastern Territory. But Don, at this point, had already retired from the sport. He was living in Houston, Texas. So when I heard about this, I called him up and I said, Don, you're not coming here to wrestle for, for, for the all-star group. And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, well, they advertise that you're going to be a referee in the main event for them. And he was like, oh, you kidding, Ron? Because you got to know better than that, right? So, uh, so uh, you know, then uh, they did a, they did it. The, and then the second thing that they did, uh, they, and they advertised this in the paper, and they advertised it on their TV show. Uh, they called it a baby bottle challenge. This was this, dig this. Uh, <laughs> they, they they put in the paper a baby bottle challenge. It's like an added match to their cart. And they said uh, they called and they they said if Bob Roop is going to give Dick Slater five thousand dollars. If Slater shows up and can beat Bob Root. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, are you serious? Why would why would anyone do that? If Slater showed up and won, do you think they would have paid him? Well, <laughs> they, had, they had 500 people the last show, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, uh, the, the, the entire gate uh, couldn't have paid him $5,000, you know. And, uh, you know, if he'd have won the match, let's say that he was stupid enough to go do that. You know, if he'd have won it, you know, he'd better be prepared to fight them all at that point. Right. <laughs> he's there by himself and he's got 10 wrestlers on that card uh, and uh, just Dick Slater there. Uh, but, if you know, but if he showed plus, if he showed up at their event, he would have just been advertising their product, basically, you know, and if he didn't show up, then they they were going to say, well, he was scared. Right? So uh, <laughs> oh they were God. doing this every week on the cards every week. That know? is wow. Holy cow. How cheap can you get? That's a very cheap scam. That gives, that gives me a much better idea of why you say wrestling wars kill the sport. All right. So do you, any idea about their attendance, how they do? Well, my, my spotter, the guy that was going every week and looking at the crowds, and he had estimated the week before was at 500, and it was out there in the Bill Byer Baseball Stadium as well. The, but he said this time they, they, they had probably, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe 1,000. You know, their crowd was much bigger than it was the week before. All right, I tell you, this has been another great one, Stud. There is so much real wrestling history in all of these i'm sorry we are not going to have time for a learning tree question this week but we have certainly learned a lot during this stud cast so how do you top this what do you do next week well next week we're going to have some bad news in tennessee uh we couldn't get to next friday in the coliseum and uh sadly we're going to for the first time uh since uh probably in the last four weeks or so, we're going to be sharing that dilapidated Bill Meyer baseball stadium with the All-Stars back-to-back, just like we were in the entire summer in the Chilhowee Park. So uh, this dislike venue, man, 
especially by Coliseum fans. Coliseum fans were a notch above what the fans I had when we came there. And I came there and started uh, building Southeastern. And uh, they were going to go to Bill Meyer Stadium. So automatically, we were looking at our attendance figures to drop dramatically uh, the next week. And uh, and it was just another blow to man my hopes of winning the Tennessee war at this point, you know, pretty soon get all this done and uh, done with. The All-Stars were going to take advantage of this situation, you know, and uh, why wouldn't they? We're in the same old dilapidated park as they are. And uh, so they're going to have in the next uh, studcast the biggest card yet for them. Hmm. And uh, So we're going to follow that up then the following week because uh, I'm not going to go and put a great big card into the Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium realizing that Fans don't want to go there. They're not going to come, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, so I know that the following week, we're going back in the Coliseum. And uh, so they're going to hit us with a big card next week uh, because we're both in that uh, uh, Bill Meyer baseball stadium. But then the following week, we're going to bring Andre the Giant home. Oh. That, so, that, uh, we got a little surprise. Yeah, that won't hurt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, the Gulf Coast territory, man, is a uh, – uh, talking about down south there, they're going to lose another big star in the next stud cast, but it's still got a strong card. And uh, and I'm going to be making an appearance on the next card down there. And I'm also going to have a meeting with everybody in the crew down there uh, to boost morale, man, to set a tone for the future. Uh, it was getting closer every week, man, to a decision, basically, uh, on my part, man, about both territories. And what am I going to do to, and is it going to be possible to save both of these territories? Well, I, I got to ask you really quickly about Andre the Giant. How how soon do you have to make the call to get Andre to come? Is it two weeks advance, a month notice? Because the timing on this was going to be perfect. Yeah, well, normally, you know, it's it takes a long time. It took a while to get the Giant. Yeah, there's probably nobody more popular <laughs> yeah, in yeah. the world yeah. as a star to come for you. And, uh, you know, and, and my relationship was really good with um, Vince Senior, yeah. Vince McMahon yeah. Senior. Yeah. Uh, but I always had to book at least two months out. So I got this date not realizing that I'm going to be in, in Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium. Right. And luckily <laughs> – uh, the week I've got Andre, we're going back into the Coliseum. Wow. All right. So timing really was impeccable on that. So it seems like, uh, I'm, I'm telling you, it seems like every studcast now gets more important and closer each week to a critical decision by you about you and your partner's future in the business. Hey, folks, listen, if you've enjoyed this, you got to check the stud out on Facebook. Go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud on Facebook. Like and follow him there. Become friends with a living legend on Twitter. Same thing. Ron Fuller Welch on Twitter. You can follow him there, too. Check out his fantastic website, tnstud.com. tnstud.com for every studcast ever done, including this one. 43 Super Studcast and Ron's stud store for all kinds of souvenirs, including the thrilling lion novel, Brutus. Get your personally autographed copy right there at tnstud.com. Of course, on YouTube, Southeastern Rewind is still red hot. It has 325 videos. The last 91 studcasts 
52 stud stories, and now 63 short rides with the stud. Don't miss Ron's tribute to Terry Funk and Ask the Stud number eight question and answer show. They're going to be there too. So they they have both already set records. Subscribe now at YouTube Southeastern Rewind. It's absolutely free. Go to YouTube in the search bar, put Southeastern Rewind, and boom, you've got the very best in old school wrestling. How do you uh, how do you top this, Ron? Any last comments? Well, as always, Dave, I want to thank everybody, man, for their continued support and encouragement and. And I got to thank the good Lord, man, for the opportunity to communicate with so many fans across the country and around the world. And uh, please take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at David Summers Productions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud. LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.